So a couple of announcements tonight. Uh, first of all, I just want to give you an alert to the fall sexuality series events. The first one will be next week, Monday, September 25. The author of a book called How to Avoid Falling in Love with a Jerk <laughs> will be on campus. And I think, honestly, that's something we all should go to. Uh, so how to avoid falling in love with a jerk. Um, he'll have two lectures. One is called Relationship Channel, Chan- Challenges, also saying it this hard. Relationship Challenges for Millennials, 3.30 to 5 in the Commons Lecture Hall, and then Follow Your Heart Without Losing Your Mind, Mm. 7 to 8.30 at night in the Recital Hall. So that's coming up. Uh, In October, there'll be a big sexuality sex ed event, um, and Thursday, October 19, and in November, we have a couple events on pornography. So these cards are going to be downstairs by the coffee and cookies. Um, for you to remember and put them in your planner. There are some classes that give credit if you go to these events, so, you know, that's something to check out too, because, you know, hey, credit. Credit's good. Also knowledge. Knowledge is also good. Um, So pay attention to those things. Um, Ella DeWine, we've been praying for. It looks like she uh, is getting her heavy bouts of chemo right now. They've been able to harvest the stem cells, which was great. It took a long time for her numbers to get up. They've actually harvested them. She's having the intensive chemo, and then soon we'll get the, the stem cells put back in. And so continue to play, pray for Ella um, as she goes through this intense chemotherapy this week. Uh, pray particularly for everybody who's around her to not be sick. Uh, her mom was fighting a cold, and if you have a cold, you can't visit somebody whose immune system is so compromised. So just be in prayer for Ella and her family. Um, and then uh, we always give an offering at Loft for the Community Care Fund. And I know some of you may be thinking, now why on earth would you ask college students to give money? That seems rather silly and or optimistic or something. And we do this because we believe that giving is a spiritual discipline. It's a spiritual muscle that we want to have strong. It's not something that's optional. It's something that's just part and parcel of the Christian life. Being able to give is something that we get to do because of what God and Christ has done for us. Now, we get to give in lots of different ways. We get to give through uh, signing up to be a greeter or a prayer servant, all of that. Is that happening again today, all those things? No? Okay. Just prayer servants, maybe? Nobody? Could be? Maybe. We could make it happen. Um, So if you're giving in those ways, that's great. And also you can give through your cash, through your money. And being able to develop this discipline is a really good thing because it's not like suddenly you become, you know, 22 and have a job and you have this whole system of tithing down. So this is the way to get you ready, uh, get us all ready for adulting when this is what we do, right? Um, and so when you have, it's, it's like scripture says, if you're faithful with a little bit, God will put you in charge of a lot. Right now, you'll have a little bit, okay? And if we're faithful with a little bits, we can trust that God's going to continue to bless us, all right? So this is an opportunity when we have the offering at Loft um, to be able to be faithful with your little bits. And so let us now give as God has blessed us.
I'm Pastor Joella. Thanks, appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. You're making me feel very loved. I appreciate it. Um, our God invites us to go before Him in prayer, so let's go to our God in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we give you thanks for this day that you have given to us, this day that we remember Jesus' resurrection, where we take Sabbath as a gift. Thank you for gathering us in this place to hear your word, to worship you, to be with each other. Thank you for your faithfulness to us in these first two weeks of school. Thank you that we are surviving, that we are perhaps even thriving. And Lord, we lift up those who are homesick. We pray that you would comfort them, that you would send them friends and kind presences and floor mates or housemates or classmates to be with them. Lord, we pray for those who are sick, whether with colds or other ailments, Lord, we pray that you would bring healing to their bodies. And God, we lift up our life at school. I pray that you would settle the students into good rhythms and habits of living and studying and being with friends. And we pray also for staff and faculty that they would also have good rhythms of living, teaching, working. We lift up the Harambe Project Neighborhood House. And God, we ask that you would bless their life together as a living community, that you would teach and show them of your presence and work in the South Hills neighborhood and on Bates Street. And Lord, we pray that their community around them would be a blessing to them and that they would be a blessing to their community. Father, we lift up our sister, Ella DeWine. Thank you, God, that she's able to move forward in her treatment. We pray that you would sustain the health of those around her, her mom especially. We pray, God, that her chemo treatment would be effective and that her body would respond well to it and that side effects would be minimal. We lift up our family members who are ill, whom we are far from, Lord. We pray that your healing hand would be upon them, that your presence would be with the family and with the one who is sick. And we pray for peace of mind for those who are here who can't be near right now. And Father, we lift up our country and all the places and people that are suffering and have been affected by the storms these last weeks and by wildfires. Lord, we thank you for all the recovery and relief that has followed, and we pray that that would continue. Lord, we lift up any in our community who are feeling vulnerable or marginalized or exposed. We pray, God, that they would know that they belong, that they are safe. Help us to be faithful presences and advocates for each other. And we lift up the places in our world like Bangladesh and Nepal and India with monsoons and flooding. We lift up the Korean Peninsula. We lift up countries in East Africa suffering from drought and famine. In our world that's full of suffering, especially right now, remind us of how you are Lord over all and that you care for your creation and for the people you have made. So God, as we prepare to receive your word tonight, open our ears and our hearts. Be with Pastor Mary as she preaches, speak through her, and give us ears to hear. We pray all these things through Christ and the Spirit's power. Amen.
Okay. I assume, being a social media savvy generation, that you are familiar with memes. <laughs> yes, yes. Like this, for example. Right? A meme is an image that you use to, like, turn something in a funny way. Right? That was my favorite. A meme is something that uh, is shared. It's usually something from pop culture that we put a different phrase to or a different phrase to or a different way of being, so it makes it a little funny. It points, points out something. It kind of takes a different spin on something. <clears throat> well, this, tonight we're going to be looking at the story of the flood. And I think it's helpful to think about the story of the flood as if it were a meme. Hang with me. You see, there were many, many, many flood stories. In fact, the vast majority of ancient cultures had a flood story of one kind or another. And the point of the flood story was to say, this is how our God or our gods are different from your gods. And so it wasn't so much that we actually each individually took a picture of the fist-pumping baby. It's that we used the fist-pumping baby image to say other things. And in the same way, the cultures, as they were developing, who often experienced floods or other natural events, would use these as explanations to teach, to teach about their gods. And so as we look at the flood story that is captured for us in Scripture tonight, it's important for us to be saying, what does this story teach us about the God of Scripture that's different from the other gods? So, for example, the, one of the flood stories involves the gods being really angry at human beings because they're being loud and keeping the gods up at night. True. And the gods get so mad, they decide we're just going to wipe them all out with a flood. That's one culture's flood story. Another culture's flood story has humans just overpopulating. They're just taking over the world. And the gods are like, there are just too many of them. Let's just wipe them all out with a flood. Great. That's what happens. In another flood story, the gods are all plotting ways to wipe out all of humanity. And they're kind of voting and they're settling in on a flood. And one of the gods who has a friend who's a human kind of sneaks away from the god summit. And he goes and he finds his human buddy and he says, psst, let's come up with a rescue plan because they're going to wipe you out. And then all the gods who've been at the God Summit are mad at that God because he let the, the human know what was going on. Those are some of the flood stories that were out there. There are many, many flood stories. So tonight we're going to see what does this flood story teach us about God. So I invite you, let's begin. There are four chapters. We're going to read through. No, we're not going to read through all of them. The flood story does take four chapters. We're going to start at Genesis 6. This is found on page 5 in your pew Bibles. And once again, I want to say if you came to Calvin and you don't have a Bible, you are welcome to take one of these with you. Genesis 6, found on page 5. We're going to begin, we're going to read a bunch of passages along through the, the sermon tonight. So just keep your Bibles open and available. 
Genesis 6, verse 11 to 13 is where we're going to start. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. (coughs) And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I am going to destroy them along with all the earth. All right, what do we learn so far? We learned that there's one God, very important, very unusual in the flood stories. There is one God. The earth is described as being full of violence. There is not one part of the earth that is not touched by sin. This builds on what we learned last week about the fall of Adam and Eve and total depravity and how sin touched everything. That's brought up right here. And then there's this guy, Noah. That's what we know so far. There's one God. The earth is corrupt. He wants to do something about it. And we got this guy, Noah. Skip over to chapter 7. We'll read the first 10 verses. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and its mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the air also, male and female, to keep their kind alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came on the earth, and Noah with his sons and his wife and his son's wife went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came on the earth. All right. Now we know a little bit about Noah. Noah was righteous. He's described as righteous. This does not mean that Noah was perfect. It means that Noah had a relationship with God, that he knew good from evil, and he was trying his best to choose the good. He was unusual in his context. He was unusual in his setting. He alone stands out before God as someone who is trying to do the right thing. That shows how pervasive sin has become. We also notice here that God wants to save animals. This is really unusual when you look at the flood stories of different cultures. And this brings us back to last week's story. Remember God's delight when he created humans and animals and he wanted everybody to get along and he brought the animals to the human for the human to name the animals and there was just this pure joy and delight in God. And he says, I want to, the animals matter to me. Creation matters to me. We're going we're gonna to save them. Now, something that you may not have picked up in Sunday school when they told you that there were only two of every kind of animal is that in some cases there were seven. Seven is a number of completion. It's a number of holiness. And the numbers of the kinds of animals that got to have seven, 14 total, seven different pair, were the clean animals. These were the animals that were used in sacrifice. 
These are the animals that Noah had been sacrificing to God. And so God is already looking beyond the flood to what will come after the flood. He says, I know that this is how this is going to turn out. We're going to end the flood. The story's going to keep going. Noah is going to want to worship me. He's going to need animals to sacrifice and have some that can go on and multiply. So God is planning ahead. So anytime you hear that there were only two of any kind of animal, you get to raise your hand and say, no, 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 there were seven of some of them. You can be that person in the room. So we've got Noah, who's righteous. We've got animals who are being saved. We've got God looking ahead to a sacrificial system. He's wanting his people to worship him. That's the context. That's what's going on. All really unusual things in the flood stories of the day. And then it gets kind of dark. Drop down to 7, verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters swelled and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters swelled so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters swelled above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, domestic animals, wild animals, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all human beings. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, human beings and animals and creeping things and birds of the air. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark and the waters swelled on the earth for 150 days. Now, this is the part of the story that we don't like to read about. We like to read about God saving the animals, right? If you go to a church nursery, they don't have this part on part of their display in the church nursery. P.S., why you would do a church nursery on the Noah's Ark story, I really don't understand, but some people do that. Hey, honey, look at this beautiful mural of things all being destroyed. I don't know. So this is the part we like to skip. This is the destruction part. This is the, you know, why is God mean part? Like, what is going on here? He just created this whole world, and now he's just destroying it. I mean, this seems like, you know, a little more Old Testament God than New Testament God. You know what I'm saying? Like, he seems a little little crabby going on here. Well, I think to understand how we get here, we need to go back even earlier than what we've read. We need to go back to Genesis 6, verses 5 through 8, because this is what really sets up the story. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. Now, if this is to be a story that teaches us about God, what exactly does this part teach us? 
I mean, does it teach us that God has regrets, that God makes mistakes, that he started off making something and then he was like, whoa, that went totally the wrong way. I did not see that coming. This is not good. I had no idea. No. The other flood stories, the gods are petty, the gods are mean, the gods are angry. In our story, the God of Scripture is not angry. In fact, in all of the book of Genesis, God is not described as being angry. God is brokenhearted. God is bereft. He grieves at what sin has done to his world. Because if we said he created it for God and humans and humans and humans and humans and creatures to all get along and live in harmony and mutuality with intimacy and joy, that's how he created the world to live. That's what he wanted. That was his beautiful vision and none of that is happening anymore and he is just broken hearted about it. Now maybe some of you have had this experience where you're at a 5K run or you're at a state park or you're at a campground and you go in to use a porta potty. And you do the normal, very normal thing and you totally avoid looking into the porta potty, right? Because it's gross. It's totally gross. You're just like, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't look. Now I want you to think about this image. God is looking over his world that he has created beautiful and lovely and whole. And it's like someone took an old school porta potty, not the nice ones with the chemical treatment and the hand sanitizer, not one of those, one of the old school porta potties, and just dumped it all over his world. That's what he's looking at. It's filthy and it's toxic and it stinks, and people are swimming in it. They're swimming in it and they don't care. They don't know any better. It's fine for them. That's what he's looking at. And that's why he says, this can't be, this is, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And we read this in Genesis and we think, man, what were those people doing? I mean, they must have had like, dictators who are exploiting their people for political gain and, you know, maybe they had like uh, people who were selling their children for sexual favors and maybe they had wives who were cheating on their husbands and husbands who were having an affair with their wives. Maybe there were children who lied to their parents. Maybe there were people who cheated on homework. Maybe there were people who ghosted their friends. I mean, aren't we so glad it's not like that anymore? You and I swim in that filth every day. And what's really important to understand about this story is that God hates sin. He hates it. He hates what it does to his beautiful creation. He hates it 
when friends can't forgive other friends. He hates it when we access pornography. He hates it when we cheat. He hates it when we lie. He hates it when we avoid sitting at lunch with someone. He hates sin. He hates our pride and the fact that we envy somebody else who has a different hair color than we do. He hates it. He hates what sin does to his creation. And that's why when he looks over the whole thing, his heart breaks. And as he's looking over the cesspool that his creation has become, he looks over into the corner and there's one guy, just one guy, who's still looking at him. One guy who actually realizes that he's filthy. One guy whose eyes are still on God. And so God looks over the whole creation and he says, I'm just gonna flush it and start over with this guy. And that's where we continue the story. Noah gets on the ark and it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, every time you see the number 40 in scripture, you need to know that that's a period of waiting and something significant is going to come after it. 40 days, 40 years, 40 is a number of waiting. So for 40 days and 40 nights, it rains. They're on the ark for a lot longer, about a year, but for 40 days and 40 nights, it rains. When things finally clear up, we're told that he sends out a raven. Now, ravens were used by people on boats to figure out where land was. Because if you let a raven go up, it would go right toward land. So you'd let it up, you'd watch it go, and you would know land was in that direction. Well, we're told here in Scripture that this raven, when Noah lets it out, it goes to and fro and to and fro. And Noah's like, well, that's not particularly helpful. So he just waits. He sends out a dove. Because a dove is going to come back. That's how doves are trained. Sure enough, the dove goes out. Dove comes back. Doesn't have anything. He waits. Sends it again. This time, the dove comes back, and it has an olive leaf in its mouth. Now, you and I may think of the olive leaf as a symbol for peace, as it is. But in that culture, in that time, the olive leaf was a symbol of resilience. It was a symbol that creation was coming back to life. Because an olive tree, you can cut down, you can burn, you can think that thing is done, it is over, and sooner or later, a little sprout will come. And that's what had happened. This dove finds a symbol of resilience. He finds a symbol of life, and he brings it back, and Noah knows life is coming back to earth. So he sends out the dove again, and sure enough, this time, the dove stays away. And Noah and his family know that it's time to get off the boat. So, chapter 8, verse 18. So Noah went out with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. And every animal, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out of the ark by families. Isn't that great? By families. Right? So even though all of this destruction is happening, even though God is wiping things out, life is still happening. 
It's still going on. Reproduction is happening. They all go out by families. A sign of life. Then God built an altar to the Lord, just as the Lord had prepared him for, and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasant odor, the Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground because of humankind. For the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth, nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Then drop down to verse 8, chapter 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I'm establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now this part, what happens here, this is crazy. This is pure craziness that a God would be willing to do this. You see, the whole point of being a God is that you have the power available at your fingertips to just destroy humanity whenever you want. That's the the point of being a God. That's the good stuff. You just get to zap things. And God is saying, yeah, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's, that's, not, that's not what I'm going to do. In fact, he takes this weapon. Those of you who are hunters, you know, bow and arrow. He takes his bow and he hangs it up. A bow was the weapon that the gods got to use to smite people. That was a big thing. And he says, yeah, I'm hanging it up. I'm not going to use it anymore. So when you see it in the clouds, you get to remember, I'm not using that anymore. I'm setting destruction aside. And did you also notice that the covenant that he makes here is in no way dependent on Noah? Noah doesn't have to do anything. Noah just gets to sit there and be like, okay, okay. works for me, right? It's all dependent on God's behavior. Humanity has to do nothing. Noah has to do nothing. God does all of it. He's the one who says, this is not going to be the way I deal with sin in the future. He says, I know every inclination of the human heart is prone towards sin. And unlike any other flood story that exists, God comes to the end of this flood story and he says, floods don't work. 
Floods are not a way to deal with the sin problem. Floods, destruction doesn't work. And he has a completely different plan. The other gods in the other flood stories are angry at humans. Humans mean nothing to them. They wipe out humans. They play with humans. Humans are pawns to them. In this story, we have a God who loves humans and hates sin. I want you to get that difference. He loves humans and hates sin. And that's the big lesson of this story. That's how this story is different from all the other flood stories. You've got a God who values creation, a God who loves animals, a God who makes a way, a God who says, floods do not solve the sin problem. I know what will solve the sin problem. And it's not about destroying humans. It's something totally different. And he looks down on his earth, the earth that's now covered in filth. Because Noah and his kids and his grandkids made it just as bad as it had been before. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit look on this earth that they have cremated. They look on this earth that they have put together lovingly. And the Son looks down on the earth and all of its filth and he says, I'll go. And the Son of God doesn't stand on the edge of the cesspool and kind of reach in a hand and see if he can help people out. The Son of God dives in to the filth. And the most amazing thing happens when he dives into the filth is that the filth starts to stick to him and he gathers it together. And in fact, the people who are the most dirty, the people who are the most filthy, the people who are the most sorrowful about their sin, they're the ones who find him the most attractive and they cannot stay away from him. And he gathers together those who need saving, who need rescuing, who need their bodies healed and their souls restored. And he takes all of the filth that he encounters in his life on earth and he takes it all to the cross. And in a way that we do not understand, the shed blood of Jesus Christ washes the sins away. Washes them away. That's the God of Scripture. A God who loves you and hates sin. I've been having conversations with students recently and either via email or in person, they'll say things like, I'm just so stuck in this sin and I don't know how God can love me. 
I just, I feel so filthy. And I, I don't, I don't know how he can even look at me. I can hardly look at me. And this is where we need to to remember that God loves you and hates your sin. And he invites us to come forward in him and say, take this sin. Jesus, I need a fresh start. I need a way out. I need to be washed. One of the great sacraments of the church is the sacrament of baptism, a sacrament where we go and either with a baby or with a big person, we take water and we say this is symbolic washing away of your sins. And we also say it's a baptism that we don't have to do all the time. You get to do it once and it sticks. It's like the best washing ever. You do it once and you are good to go because that's the power of the blood of Jesus. It washes away your sins. It's a reminder that God loves you and hates your sin. And if he can differentiate between the two of those things, I think we can start to differentiate between the two of those things and say, God loves me and he hates my sin and he invites me into a new way of being. Every day, every moment, every breath with Jesus is a fresh start. You get to say, I want to come to hate my sin as much as God hates my sin. I want to come to look on my sin the way God looks at a filthy world and be repulsed by it and want to do nothing with it And I want to do as God did and say, I am more than my sin. My sin does not define me. My sin is not my identity. I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. That's why we worship That's why we gather. Because we do not worship a God who hates humanity and wants it destroyed. We worship a God who loves humanity and wants sin destroyed. And so tonight, if you want, you have the opportunity to come. There are bowls in the back and there are three in the front. Can you just come and remember your baptism? And if you haven't yet been baptized, then you can make a commitment and say, I need to be baptized. And you can put your hand in, and you can make the sign of the cross on your forehead, or you can wash your hands as a sign of cleansing, or you can make the sign of the cross on your arm. But in some way, we get to celebrate tonight the fact that our God has made a way for sin to be destroyed and for us to live again. Your God loves you. And in Jesus Christ, he has made a way for you to be set free from sin. So in just a moment, I'm gonna pray. And after I'm done praying, Nate's gonna come up and play a little bit. And when you're ready, come forward. And after a little bit, we're gonna sing.